Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16 will be in the end of Mark today as we look at resurrection hope together. I'm going to uh, put the, the notes here on the screen just briefly. The way this works, it doesn't work great for me to be able to do it the, the entire time through, so I'm just going to, to walk through this uh, quickly with us as we, as we look at this, and then I'll pull it down in just a minute. But we're going to look at resurrection hope from these eight verses. We're going to see this central idea that the resurrection turns fear into gospel hope. The resurrection takes fear and it turns it to hope. And if there's ever a time when our world needed this message, it's today. As we walk through this passage, we're going to kind of follow this track, what we miss in Mark's story, what we find here in Mark's story, why we're not crazy to believe what he has to say, to believe his story, and then fourthly, what this means for us. We'll see that Jesus is risen. We'll see that Jesus is at the center of all that God is doing. The resurrection by itself doesn't produce faith, but it does give us hope, and the story doesn't end here. So I'll read Mark 16, verses 1 through 8. I'll leave this on the screen for a minute in case that would help you track it down. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go and anoint Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled aback. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. So we'll see in this passage this morning that the Lord uses the resurrection to turn fear into hope. So we find these ladies on this Easter morning, and we last gathered as a church on Friday evening to celebrate Good Friday, and that's the last time any of Jesus's followers were really together with Jesus. At the end of the day, Friday, it has grown dark, and then in between, there's been Sabbath. And Sabbath is really a pause in this whole story of the crucifixion and resurrection. There's not a lot that happens on this day that we know of. And when these ladies come, it's the end of the Sabbath day because they couldn't do any work. And so pretty much they, they went through a hasty burial through Jesus in the grave and hadn't fully prepared him. And so now these ladies come the first day of the week, Sunday, and they're going to finish the job that was done rather hastily on Friday. And the story that Mark tells us is a story that we find uh, four different times in Scripture. And each time it's told, it's told with different details and different memories from a different perspective. Mark's gospel, if you know the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Mark's gospel is, is the shortest of these four gospels. And as is typical, his is the shortest resurrection story. And as each uh, writer tells a story. They, they each share their own perspective based on their memories, based on what they see and the people that they've talked to. 
It's a little bit like, I don't know if you've ever had a time at a family reunion where uh, maybe you're all sharing stories about something that happened. In, in our family, we have a lot of perspectives because I've got uh, eight siblings. And so we'll sit down and we'll tell a story and someone will be like, that's not what happened. But what we're doing is we're sharing uh, stories from our own perspective. You know, someone who was really little experienced in one way, someone who was older experienced it a different way. And here Mark shares his perspective on this story. And because Mark's perspective is brief, the first thing we want to look at is what we miss here in Mark's story. So there's a low, noticeable lack in all the Gospels of something here. When we go to the tomb, who do we find at the tomb? Women. So where in the world are all the men? We go to the tomb the first day of the week, and there are women here, but there are no men. What happened? Well, John chapter 20 tells us that Jesus' disciples have locked themselves in a room for fear of the Jews. So Jesus, their leader, is dead, and the disciples are literally quaking in fear behind a locked door, afraid to even be seen out in public. The last time uh, we've saw, we saw them, they all fled, they all ran away, and left Jesus alone. So here we find Mary, Mary, and Salome going to the tomb, and, and there are no men to look out for them. So the tomb is a risky place to be if you're a disciple. The, Matthew's gospel tells us that the religious leaders placed armed guards at the tomb so no one could come and, and, and steal the body. But what the disciples don't know, and what these women don't yet know, is something remarkable has already happened. Matthew 28 tells us that while Jesus' body lay in the tomb, there's a great earthquake. And then an angel from heaven comes down and he rolls away this stone that has been set in front of the tomb and has been sealed and guarded by a guard of soldiers. Now, there are witnesses to this event because scripture tells us that the guards see what happened. And they're literally paralyzed by what they see. Uh, the scripture tells us they became like dead men. They're just frozen, petrified in fright. Well, the angel disappears and Jesus is raised. Well, the guards manage to gather their strength together and they run to the city and they tell the chief priests what happened. Well, now the Jewish leaders know they're in trouble because what they feared has actually come, come, come about. And so they take up a collection. Now, this isn't a collection for a temple. This is a bribe. And so they collect money to pay off these soldiers to tell them to lie about what happened. And so they convince these soldiers with a sum of money not to say that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. But Jesus did rise from the dead, and the guards say that the, the disciples came and, and stole the body while they were sleeping at night. So this takes us from what we miss in Mark's story to what we find. So what's missing are the disciples. What's missing are Jesus's followers. What's missing are any men, a few women that show up. Well, what do we find here? We come back, we find the women on their way to the tomb. We catch them in the middle of a conversation because they're going to the tomb and they know in front of this tomb is a large stone that they are physically unable to move. And they say, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance? Like, how are we going to get at the body of Jesus? And they're worried because verse four tells us it's a remarkably heavy stone. It's, it's no mere door that's easy to open. Yet when they arrive, the stone is already gone. They show up and, and, and what their fear was, that, that, that's the least of their worries because there's no stone there at all. And then they see a man there, an angel. Mark's description sounds pretty calm. A young man, he calls him, in a white robe. It almost sounds like, I don't know, the best Christmas pageant ever. Someone dressed up in a sheet and some man standing there. 
But Matthew adds some detail to what Mark has to say. He says, his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. He appears like a flash and his appearance perhaps is even accompanied by thunder and he's blinding to see, he's blinding to look at. You see, angels are cool to imagine, but they're terrifying to meet in person. We see this over and over throughout scripture. So we see fear in this passage. The disciples are terrified and they're hiding. The women come and they're scared because the last thing they've seen is Jesus on the cross and they've been looking on from a distance. And now they find this angel and in verse five, we see that they are alarmed. The last word we see in this passage is that they leave and they are afraid. When Mark says that these women are alarmed, he's the only writer in scripture to use this particular word to say that they are alarmed. But it's the same word that he's already used in Mark 14 when he says that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was greatly distressed. Do you remember when he was weeping and praying and he sweated so much that he sweated, as it were, great drops of blood? He's distressed. It's the same word, alarmed. It has to do with the deepest physical, emotional response to something. So these women meet the angel and they respond the same way with great distress when they see this angel. Uh, the, the angel is a little bit like, I don't know, the, the misunderstood abominable snowman or some monster. He says, you know, don't be afraid, but, but the women can't help but be afraid because he's so terrifying to see. And so they see him and they, they respond. The angel says in verse six, don't be alarmed. You'll see Jesus just like he told you. But like a misunderstood monster, the women flee the angel. They went out, verse eight, fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment has, had seized them. At this point, their controlling emotion is terror. They said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. They're gripped by fear, and the way Mark says this is literally saying, they said nothing to nobody. They didn't talk to no one. I mean, they went back, they kept their mouth shut because they were so gripped by what they had seen. And the last three words of Mark's story are, are remarkable. He says, they were afraid. I mean, we think of the resurrection and we think of it as, as a story of hope. We think of it as a story of victory. We think of it as a story of, 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 uh, of moving forward under the next stage of, of the Christian life. And yet, Mark says that these women were paralyzed by fear. So why is it that we're not crazy to believe Mark's story? Well, it's easy some 2,000 years removed from this moment, removed from this event when Jesus rose, to think that it's, it's just made up. But writers in the story make it clear that this isn't just a made-up story. Jesus died. I mean, the centurion who supervised the execution in, 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 uh, in Mark 15 is before Pilate, and he confirms that Jesus died. They brought an expert witness to confirm that he is dead. But then after Jesus has been dead and confirmed by expert witnesses that he is dead, he's seen by a bunch of people. Mark's gospel is the earliest of the four gospels. And somewhere around the same time Mark is writing, Mark chapter 16 here, Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 15. And there in 1 Corinthians 15, that great chapter of the resurrection, Paul lists hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw Jesus. Matthew tells us the soldiers saw this happen. So these men, Mark, Paul, Matthew, Luke, they're writing this, while eyewitnesses are still alive. There are people who could say that didn't happen. There are people who were literally there who are still living during this time. So you can't make this up while people are still telling their stories. But one of the biggest reasons 
that we know that what Mark says is true is something that doesn't jump out to us immediately in 21st century culture. Because if you went into a first century courtroom and you were calling witnesses for your case, who could you not call as a witness? Well, there might be a whole list of people, but, but certain people, particularly women, couldn't serve as legal witnesses. They didn't, they didn't have the standing legally to serve as witnesses in a court of law. You can't take their word for anything in Jewish culture. I mean, you could have a whole crowd of women witness a murder and yet not be able to do anything about it because their testimony isn't admissible in a court of law. And yet Mark, who almost never lists people, he, he rarely uses uh, proper names. So he'll describe someone, a centurion, he'll describe someone with a description, but he rarely actually calls them by name. He actually names these three women. Well, he wouldn't do that if he were trying to make up a story and kind of add credibility by coming up with witnesses. He wouldn't list these three people. And yet Mark moves through this story and he, and he highlights God's use of women to witness the resurrection. So what then does this mean for us? If, if all this is true, if Jesus is risen, it's not crazy to believe this, what does this mean? Well, first and most obvious, it means Jesus is risen. We, we skipped through these words as we, as, we, as we ran through the story, but verse 6, the angel says, you seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He's risen. He's not here. I mean, imagine that you're one of the disciples behind, uh, behind a locked door. In that moment, you've lost all hope. You're terrified. I mean, your biggest fear is your, can, you, can you save your own neck at this point? You're terrified that you're going to be the next dude hung between two thieves on a cross. And you're going to hang in shame and everyone see you dead. And then you hear the news, he is risen. And then that, that darkness turns to hope. You see, the resurrection takes our fear and it turns it through the gospel into hope. It's why Christians can experience a pandemic, something like a deadly virus, and walk through it. And we have natural human fear. We have natural dread of, of what it means. And we take necessary wise precautions. But as Christians, we don't need to be terrified of death. We don't need to panic. We don't need to run in fear because Jesus is a risen Savior. It's why for a Christian... Fear of having no money is a real human fear, and yet ultimately, we can rejoice because as Scripture tells us, Jesus, for our sakes, became poor so that we through him might become rich. And he's not talking about meeting a mere physical, uh, human, earthly financial needs. He's talking about eternal, heavenly riches through Christ. We don't have to despair at the death of a loved one. We don't have to despair in illness because Jesus' return, we hope in his return to fix it all when he's going to set, set aside all pain, all mourning, all crying, all sickness, and there's not going to be any more grief. So if all we have in this is, is this life, if all we have is, we can, is what we can see, then each of these situations, personal illness, a death of a loved one, a loss of personal finance, each of these things seems hopeless. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, this changes everything. I mean, this is why the early church greeted one another by saying, he is risen and responding, he is risen indeed. I mean, one thing that people are talking about in the midst of, of uh, this COVID-19 pandemic is like, does how we greet one another have to change? 
And I, I have some votes on that, but I'm not going to share them here. But, but one thing that I think is good is, is to remember this greeting. They didn't walk in and say good morning. Their focus was Christocentric. It was focused on Christ. He is risen. He is risen indeed. I mean, the hope of the world rides on this truth, that Jesus Christ became a man, that he is risen from the dead, and no lie spread by any human being can undo the truth of the resurrection. Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we're of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, this is the verse we began our service with, Christ is risen from the dead. It's true, he is risen. I mean, don't walk through life and lose the wonder of what it means for Jesus to be raised. Don't lose the wonder of the resurrection. Jesus is risen and this changes everything. This changes everything about the way we experience normal human emotion. It changes the way we experience normal physical frailty, human relationships. It changes everything. It means that when your brother or sister provokes you, uh, picks at you in a way that makes you angry and you're tempted to flip your lid, it means that the power of Jesus is yours and you're fighting against sin. It means that this Tuesday morning, when you're feeling alone and trapped in the prison of your own mind, that Jesus's resurrection power is yours. Now, we walk through life, and, and one thing that happens as adults is we get, I don't know, a little jaded on everything in life. But if either you're around your kids, your grandkids, or, or you observe children, there, there's a stage in a child's life where they go through what we sometimes call the age of wonder, where the smallest thing just makes them so excited, like, can you believe this? And uh, it's been a couple of years ago now, but we were uh, just kind of lounging around our house one day, and, and there was a bug that came into our house. And our little guy, Joseph at the time, I think he was about two, so he's, he's four now, he's about two years old. And uh, he saw this bug. It was, it was an ordinary, everyday bug. Nothing special about this bug. But somehow at age two, it captured Joseph's fancy to where this bug was fascinating to him. And then for weeks after this, now, bugs being bugs, I hate to tell you, this bug meant its demise. They don't live very long. That's, that's one of my jobs in serving my family is to make sure that, uh, that bugs either make it outside or they don't survive at all. That's, that's one of my roles. But at age two, Joseph would ask for weeks about this bug, and he'd say, where's the bug? Where's the bug? I'd say, it's gone. Gone? And he, gone? He, he couldn't believe it. Now, think about that. Think about a two-year-old captured with the wonder of a bug, and just, just being, but being captivated by this. And think about the fact that we serve a risen Savior. And if a two-year-old can get excited about a bug, don't lose the wonder of the resurrection. Jesus is risen. Don't let this truth leave your life. Secondly, we see that Jesus is the center. Other writers, uh, as they tell this, Jesus actually appears in the garden. But in Mark's gospel, Jesus isn't here. He doesn't appear. It's an angel. He's completely missing. And yet, as these women look for Jesus, who is still the central character? Who's this passage about? It's about Jesus. It's about the, the risen, the missing Savior. I mean, we don't leave this story thinking about uh, the angel who appeared. We don't leave this story thinking about Salome. We're thinking about Jesus, the Savior. The only way he appears is by words that show he's missing. You see Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth, verse 6. He lies at the center of this story because he's at the center. He's the focal point of history. And this story models what should be true in our lives, that Jesus should be the center of our lives. 
Thirdly, and importantly here, we see the resurrection doesn't produce faith by itself. Now, before you think, you know, you flip out and you think I've lost it, just, just, just think about this. Jesus has already told us this. I mean, the Pharisees have come to Jesus asking for a sign, and Jesus says, if, if we did a sign, even if, even if uh, Lazarus or Abraham returned from the dead, they wouldn't listen. And the story of the resurrection bears this out. In Matthew's gospel, the most popular response to the resurrection is to say that it's made up. I mean, these men saw it happen, and yet they say, ah, it's a made-up story. It's, it's like we take what's true and we suppress it. It's what Paul talks about in Romans 1, that we suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's like if you've ever been in a, in a pool and you tried to, like, I don't know, hold on to a beach ball and kind of hover on that beach, you, you can't. You can, you, can, you can try to keep it under the water, but eventually it'll pop back up. And that's what the knowledge of God is like in this. And so the resurrection by itself doesn't produce faith. This truth produces hope only if you embrace it by faith. I mean, there are people in this story who know the truth about Jesus, and yet they suppress it, like the soldiers. Others uh, don't respond because they're held captive by, by their own fear. And that's what happens with these women. They leave and they're afraid. There's no turning to faith here. These women don't respond in faith and hope. They're prisoners of fear. Jesus is risen from the dead and people respond in faithless fear. These women say nothing to nobody about a risen savior. And yet the resurrection does give us hope. Mark's ending is pretty abrupt. The women are afraid. But the other gospels tell us the rest of the story. The disciples are in a room, the women are out and about, and they're looking around. But, but what changes their fear? In Matthew 28, after this, Jesus appears to these women, and he says to them three words, don't be afraid. It's the voice of Jesus that turns their fear into hope. In John chapter 20, Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene, and he calls her by name. In Luke 24, two disciples, they're walking down the road to Emmaus. They're discouraged. They're depressed. They're talking about the fact that their Savior is dead. And then Jesus shows them how the Bible points to Christ. In every case, it's not a person. It's not even an angel from heaven. It's an encounter with the risen Christ that turns faith to fear. Fear to faith. Said that the opposite. Fear to faith. Every time, it's an encounter, a personal encounter with true faith in Christ. And apart from true faith, the resurrection doesn't do us any good. We must turn from our sin and trust Jesus. And if you're here today, whether you're very old and very familiar with this story, or whether you're very young and relatively unfamiliar with this story, our only hope is to turn and trust Jesus. If you haven't, would you turn and trust him in faith? Now, Mark also hints here at Jesus's care for his disciples. Verse 7, go tell his disciples and Peter. Now, why do you think it is that the angel singles out Peter? Why tell all the disciples and Peter? Remember what Peter did? Remember how Peter failed? How Jesus told him before this night is over, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter said, not me, I'm willing to die for you. And then what do we find Peter doing? We find him once, second time, and a third time denying Christ. Yet Jesus remembers Peter. Peter's had an emotional breakdown. He's out weeping bitterly, and he sends special word to Peter. I mean, all the disciples are afraid, but Peter's in a worse state than any of them. 
Luke 24 tells us that when they went to the disciples, the disciples heard the women's word like gossip. They didn't believe them. But Peter responded differently. What did Peter do? Luke 24 tells us that Peter rose and he ran to the tomb. Why did Peter respond differently than the rest of the disciples? They're all like, nah, that didn't happen. But Peter responds and these words to him are like words of hope. Why is that? It's because Peter was at the end of himself. For the first time, he allowed himself to imagine that there might be reason for hope. Jesus cares for his people. And the resurrection demonstrates that he has the power to help us. So when you feel discouraged or, or depressed, remember Peter in this moment. When you're broken because your children are rejecting you or rejecting God, remember Peter. In a moment when you're crying and you can't even explain the reason for your tears, you just feel sad, remember Peter. When you weep, pleading with God to answer your prayer and you feel like no one's there, remember Peter, weeping, hopeless. But when he heard that Jesus was risen, they sounded to his ears like words of hope and life. Peter got up and ran to the tomb. So where do we run when we're discouraged? Where do we run when we're depressed? Where do we run when we're afraid? Run to Christ when chased by fear and doubt. Run to Christ when vexed by shame. Get up and run to Jesus. The grave is empty and the cross is our glory because Jesus is risen. But in the end, the story doesn't end here. Mark's gospel begins with these words, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the beginning of Mark's gospel, and Mark's gospel is the beginning of the rest of the story. The story of Jesus will continue. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and the rest of the New Testament with his followers. It continues with the words of Jesus, go into all the world and preach the good news that Jesus Christ came to save sinners. The story of Jesus is an eternal story. It doesn't end here, and the good news is it doesn't end with us. We get to take this good news, the good news of the risen Christ, to Jesus's next followers. And so a question for us as we wrap up our study this morning is, who are we calling to hope in the resurrection? Who are we calling to follow us as we follow Christ? Who are we calling to hope in Christ? The hope of the resurrection turns our fear into hope, and it can do it for others too. Let's take this good news to a world that needs it. Well, as we close our time together here, I hope that the wonder of Jesus's resurrection will encourage you this week. As we go, may the grace and peace of Jesus, the risen Savior, be with you all. I love you. I miss you. And I can't wait till we get to be together again. Have a wonderful day.